So, namaste and uh, thank you very much to Ramesh ji for this invitation to share a few thoughts on a topic that I have delved on sufficiently deeply but it's it's an ocean it's a it's a very vast ocean but enough to wet the appetite to keep trying to understand this Vedic psychology and especially the hidden chamber of the mystic truth so the whole idea is to try and understand what is this what is the secret of the Veda that Sri Aurobindo talks about and I'd like to just uh, share with you because I can do it in a very formal presentation like thing but I thought I will share with you my personal journey into Vedic psychology and uh, hope that you can also uh, discover the joy that I have had in understanding what this text really signifies for our civilization. Um, so when I was in the ashram school, uh, we had to study various texts of Sri Aurobindo. And uh, one of the texts that I looked at was the secret of the Vedas. In my final year of college, we had the option of uh, giving a talk and I chose to delve deeper into this particular text. And there are two, uh, two quotations of Sri Aurobindo that struck me as being extremely inspirational to design the rest of my life on the basis of that. So I'd like to just share with you some of them, both these. So in one of them, Sri Aurobindo says, he says, I seek not science, not religion, not theosophy, but Veda, the truth about Brahman, not only about his essentiality, but about his manifestation, not a lamp on the way to the forest, but a light and guide to joy and action in the world, the truth which is beyond opinion, the knowledge which all thought strives after, yasmin vijnate sarvam idam vijnatam. I believe that Veda to be the foundation of the Sanatana Dharma. I believe it to be conce the concealed divinity within Hinduism. But a veil has to be drawn aside. A curtain has to be lifted. I believe it to be knowable and discoverable. I believe the future of India and the world to depend on its discovery and on its application. Not to the renunciation of life but to life in the world and among men. So this first quotation, first of all, for me was a very powerful um, invitation to understand the nature of this text because our master being such a genius across uh, languages, across cultures, for someone of his nature to say that I don't seek science, I don't seek many other things, but I seek the Veda, implied that it, this was definitely something that was worth delving into deeper. There is another quotation which he says, he says, the recovery of the perfect truth of the Vedas is not merely a desideratum of modern intellectual curiosity, but a practical necessity for the future of the human race. So that was another one that really uh, hit the hammer deeper in to say that there is really something that needs to be uncovered in these texts. So going to the, coming back to the title of my talk itself, 
which is Vedic psychology, the hidden chamber of mystic truth. One uh, approach that I normally like to do is I like to, de I like to deconstruct the terms themselves of a title and see what further we can discover therein. So when we have this title which is the Vedic psychology, what do we really mean by Vedic? What do we really mean by psychology in this context? Uh, what do we mean by hidden chamber and this mystic? What is mystic and what is truth at the end of the day? Because that is what we are trying to understand here. So when we talk of the Vedas, we normally tend to think of these texts, chanting. These are the things that come spontaneously to mind. Right? There's chanting. It's a manual of uh, certain uh, rituals, etc. So what Sri Aurobindo and what the texts themselves say, in fact, that the Vedas can be understood at various levels. In fact, truth itself or life itself is not what appears to be. There are always different layers of what is apparent to us. So for example, if I tell you the word light, if one is, a very, uh, one is someone who is living on a very materialistic plane, you will think of the physical light. But if somebody is inclined towards knowledge, they will look at it as uh, a deeper kind of a knowledge, the seeking of knowledge. And somebody who is spiritually inclined will understand the same words meaning uh, deeper illumination of certain fundamental ignorances of existence itself. So it's one word, but depending on our state of consciousness, we will attribute a different significance to that same word. So the Shastras as well as uh, Sri Aurobindo basically talk of how words have these multi-layered revelations depending on the level of the seeker who is approaching them. So the Vedas itself can be understood largely on three levels. So we have the Adibhautika level which is the physical world and that's the world that we grasp through our senses, our physical senses. And then there is the Adhyatmika, uh, no, then there is the Adhidaivika, which is the world of the subtle. So this is not something that we grasp with our outer senses, but we also have inner senses. And when we talk about inner senses, we are referring to the fact that if I tell you to close your eyes and listen to the music of flute or listen to Samyaji's uh, lovely chanting or singing, we'll, we are able to hear it, although our outer senses are no longer exposed to that sound. So there is within us a memory or an inner understanding of existing realities. So that's the Adi Daivika, it's a subtler world. And then we have the Adhyatmika, which is the ideal, which is the potential ideal in any given situation, which is not corrupted by uh, the, human, the limitations of partial human understanding of things. So that is beyond. So again, coming back to uh, Samyaji's bhajans and chanting, uh, the, the notes that she was singing, the music that she was reproducing exists in its ideal somewhere. And when we are able to reproduce that in its, in its fullness, then there is a spontaneous joy of a discovery. Uh, it's like, wow, I'm, like she sang, if I try to reproduce it, you will appreciate the difference. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's basically uh, the, the whole uh, aspiration of the Vedic Rishis was to try and approximate these ideal potentials. Because what they realized is that in every situation there is an ideal. There is a mathematical ideal in any given circumstance.
given the resources available, given the skills available, everything, in any given circumstance, there is a potential maximum, I mean, optimum ideal, which is the perfection of that, the potential perfection of that time, the Purnata in Sanskrit, of that particular moment. And that Purnata, that completeness, is what is referred to as Satya in the Vedas. The next idea is the concept of the Rita or the right. So we talk of Ritam. I mean, we talk of, you know, whenever we refer to right, when we say this is the right thing to do, the moment we say right, we are implying that there is a backdrop against which this right becomes valid. Right. So what is that backdrop? Now, usually this right of things is determined by our social conditionings. Society decides that these are the norms, that there are norms that have to be followed. And if we comply, if we conform, conform to those, then we are doing the right thing. So, but these societal laws and all that we, um, we present are often based on our limited mental understandings of what is good and what is bad, etc. And therefore determined. So that is the right. But this right in the Vedas is not talking of that. The rhythm of the Vedas is that 100% potential, that top potential that we are talking about. So Satya is that potential. Rita is the right execution of that potential. So you can imagine if there is a potential and there is the full implementation. That's why Sri says here it's not just the ideal seeing but there is a manifestation of that. And the Vedas are talking about the manifestation part of that uh, potential. When we can do it right, then as you can expect, you will get the best results. Anyone will get the best results, which is Brihat or the vast. So this is, in a sense, the core aspiration of the Vedic rishis, where they said that there is, there are at any given such situations, there are these right, uh, there are these satyas, and the more we are able to see them. So the faculty that was invoked for the human being was not just the mana, but it was an invocation to the faculty of drishti. Can we see that truth? Because the mind itself is based on the conditionings it has had. Those conditionings are, what I say, the limited data set of functioning. So if we function only on that basis, whatever we will see will go through that uh, blinkered vision of truth. So one is called to be able to s drop that and understand something beyond, which is there in any case, but which we need to see. And that's why the Vedic, th that's why they were known as Vedic seers or rishis, because they were seers, they were not thinkers of the thing, or of, of those truths. And uh, when the more we are able to uh, approximate that truth, the more spontaneously brihat uh, or the vast or the sukha, because sukha means vast spaces. So we enjoy, we spontaneously get the best results in whatever we do. So the Vedas, like I said, comes from the root vid. And what does vid mean? Vid has four meanings. Largely, vid means to know, vid means to obtain, vid also means to think, and vid means to be. So, the knowledge of the Vedas is the knowledge that is, uh, that is a knowledge to be known, 
through a process of a thinking uh, in order to obtain that knowledge which allows us to be. In very simple terms, I'm trying to present the, the core of the Vedic truth. And this core, if I can use the acronym core, is like connecting to our real essence. Because who are we, where are we going, uh, what is our relationship with the world around us, are certain fundamental questions that arise and should arise in the mind of anyone, any traveler on this journey of life. Because the fact is, uh, the Vedic Rishis recognized very early. They said that we are all on a journey. Uh, there, is a, there is a journey because there is a beginning and there is an end. So there is this passage. So who is the, who is the voyager? Who is the one who is undertaking that journey? Uh, where are we headed? And uh, what is the way in which we can relate in the best way possible to all of us? So in each of these questions, there is a quest for the optimum answer in, the, in them. So who is this voyager? The very first question, who is this traveler? And through a very natural processing, uh, if I can take you through this exercise, is, uh, if you ask yourself, am I, am I, uh, who am I, the koham, the question. And the first uh, kind of answer is, okay, we tend to relate to different labels. So I am Anuradha, I am a woman, I am a, I'm an Indian, I'm a Bharatiya. You can even say I'm an Indian or I'm a Bharatiya. They don't mean identically the same thing sometimes. Uh, one is a, a, a political, geopolitical identity, the other is a cultural association we have. So there are so many filters of being through which we present ourselves. But then there are these filters can be reduced to certain basics. So you can come down to saying, I have a body. This is something that I cannot really change easily. Though in today's world, even that is not an absolute. But largely, we, we are inhabited or we inhabit a certain structure. So the question there is, do I have a structure or am I my structure? Who am I is the question. And there's this very interesting play between what we have and who are we. So do I have a body or am I my body? And can I become my body? To what extent do I become my body? So if I say that I, a I am my body, the question is which body? Of the child, of who I am now, of what I will become later on? Which body am I? And if suddenly there is an accident and one loses half the body, does it, make up, does it imply I have become half? So we understand by this reasoning that I have a body which I do become. Because if I'm hungry, I will not feed somebody else. So there is an identity, close identity with this body. But I can choose many things around it. Similarly with emotions. Do I have emotions or am I my emotions? To what extent can I become my emotions? So if I say that I am my emotions, then I am an angry person. But if I say I have emotions, there can be a trigger of anger, but I can choose whether I want to become angry or not. So it starts liberating the individual from a lot of labels that we tend to acquire if we don't have the, if we are not aware enough of the freedom of our choice. Similarly, do I have thoughts or am I my thoughts? Same, if I have thoughts, then I can choose which thoughts I want to, uh, I want to dwell on and which thoughts do I choose to reject. But then the big question is if I have a body and I have emotions and I have thoughts, 
then who is this i and just by the simple grammatical processing of uh, fundamental identities we arrive at a fact that there is a deeper self there is something else there is a witness consciousness to this entire process of life and the vedic rishis very early on recognized the importance of connecting to that deeper uh, witness consciousness because and and in the yoga sutras also for example they talk of this because all these different streams of explorations of the self were leading to very similar realizations so the yoga sutra also tells us the very second sutra tells us what is yoga what is this union of the body emotions mind and the spirit so he says when does that really happen it says chitta vritti nirodhaha when these mind movements are stopped that's when we are we have the opportunity of connecting to something else because the more disturbed the inner uh, inner world is the less we have access to the essentials of ourselves so if we want to understand who we are we need to first quieten that noise and when we can do that then we have a chance of connecting to that witness self tada drashtuhu that seer swarupe avasthanam gets established in themselves and once they are established in themselves then they are they are in a better position to look at reality for what it is look at reality as such the rest of us are looking at reality through mediated lenses all of us i mean we are all we are all very familiar with the limitations of how we perceive things so the vedic rishis were very keen that we cut out that noise the mental noise so that we are able to look at things for what they are and thereby act in ways that are the most um, transparent and joyful because there are no filters there are no other uh, beings or forces that are tugging at our self but following the path that has to go so in this journey there is there is a destination and there is a starting point and there are paths it's not just there is one path each of us at every moment of our life uh, has to make a choice which path will one take you had a choice do i attend the talk do i not attend the talk i had a choice when do i accept to talk what do i say what is the next word that will come out of my mouth is also a choice it is a path if i go down one path i will reach a particular end if i take another one i will reach another end so all of us um like it or not we are making these decision decisions moment to moment and then the question becomes and what is the basis on which the direction the that, that direction is being chosen who is the decider of that path so one is of course there is for example no other creature on earth that asks itself the question what do i do next other than the human being that is our uh, our bane and that is our blessing uh, the it's the bane because uh, all creatures know exactly if they're hungry if they have to mate if they have to go somewhere they are in tune with nature and they know exactly what has to be done so there is no disharmony with the flows of nature the only creature that is lost and that is constantly seeking is the human one because our the path is not clear and therefore how do we find that path 
is the most important question and the psychology part of it is uh, and, and like i said the core of the vedic psychology is how do we connect to our real essence uh, and that can happen at various levels because there is a physical level there is an optimum of the physical reality we incarnate there is an emotional being what is the optimum emotional self i can be there is a mental being what is the highest thought level that i can reach there is a spirit what is the way in which i can i can manifest the qualities of that spirit at every level of the being and in the integral yoga that is what was the aspiration of that integral perfection that integral transformation where matter is one end of the spectrum that is uh, the the most removed uh, form form from the spirit but can matter also incarnate the qualities of the spirit uh, so that is one quest not just of integral yoga because shrobindo always talk refers back to the vedas as, and says that this is what the vedic rishis were trying to do they were not in so much in the vedantic idea of you know that we are the spirit and bodies uh, bodies a burden we need to reject it and we need to go beyond it but it says this itself the instrument needs to be perfected all right so uh, that's the whole the part of the vedic the psychology part is how do we start figuring out the root this mind which is our most powerful guide as of now because we are manushya we are mental mana beings we are man you see they all have the same root of the mana huh? we are descendants of manu the mind being that has come so what is the quality of the mind that will allow us to discover these optimums is the question okay so because we are manushya Uh, and the mind being our most important instrument in the vedas the godhead that was invoked uh, most frequently is indra so in the vedas they talk of two godheads primarily so one is indra and the other is agni so sri aurobindo says that indra uh, comes from the word idandra iti huh? so he is that which is responsible also for our senses uh, and it's very fascinating uh, the details in which you know the psychological details in which this is laid out because how do we know the world normally we discover the world through our senses right the outer senses are our guides to understand the world but the outer senses do not give us inform they just allow they are like gateways they do not decide the nature of reality they are like gateways where information goes in then the mind processes that information and we then react on that basis so that's why when there is a same truth i mean there is a fact all of us interpret that same fact in different ways because although there is an objective so called objective reality we are all understanding it differently based on our lenses that we are utilizing our psychological lenses based on our conditionings etc so indra represents the illumined mind and how do we arrive at this illumined mind is a very interesting process and that is what sadhana is all about sadhana is all about in my humble opinion sadhana the first step of sadhana is how the mother lays it out she says uh, first she says observe huh 
so observe first so what what are these kinds of filters that we need to have and in that we have uh, what the vedas talks about they talk about different forces that are acting so largely there are two kinds of forces there are the forces of light and there are the forces of darkness the forces of light are the devas the forces of darkness are the dasyus uh how do we what do we mean by deva deva comes from the root div and div is the same root as divine so what do we mean by divine again in this context of the vedic truth that we are trying to uh, explain or present here is the fact that at the basis of all creation there was there is consciousness so the very substance or the very stuff of existence is consciousness so it's light but then due to the leela this light chose to play hide and seek with itself so in the vedas they say eko ham bahusyam i am one i want to become many but how can one that is everything become many so it chose to hide itself that's what we do if you're playing hide and seek you have to pretend that you're not somewhere else so the light withdrew itself and suddenly you had darkness but this darkness was not stable because it doesn't have reality it's the absence of light and but because there is consciousness involved even this darkness had forces that were there so these forces are the dasyus they are the forces that divide us that tear us that don't like allow us to be complete and that's the game the whole game of existence can be determined in this game of light and darkness and why is the human being such an important part in that because we have been given that full freedom of being the player of this game how do we play either we are playing the card of light or we are playing the card of darkness and the long and short of it is that we have no option the world is a world of gray but in that either each one of us is adding to the light or each one of us is adding to the darkness and this is a a second to second choice that we are making to what extent are we conscious of it will make us conscious contributors towards increasing light in the in in the world or darkness in the world so at the end of the day this vedic psychology boils down to some very simple essentials are we playing the light the game of light consciously and actually there is no other choice because if we are not playing that by default we are on the other side <laughs> so this entire choice element is can we understand what do we mean by light in this what is that truth so it comes down to trying to uh recognize in one sense again another way of presenting this light phenomenon is the experience of what we call the brihat the vast or is it making us shrink that's the other movement is it expanding us or is it shrinking us light is a bit ab- abstract but this experience of expansion or shrinking is a much more palpable materialistic uh, reality that we can connect with so where does it begin it begins with our thoughts it begins with our speech it then flows into our action are the nature of our thoughts are they expansive do they make us feel bigger than ourselves or are they making us smaller in our consciousness 
are our sorry are our thoughts doing that first and foremost are our words helping to make this world a more harmonious place are they helping to make us become greater than we than ourselves or do our words create more darkness are they creating more conflict are they creating more pettiness in the world so if they are creating division we know we are on the side of the dasyus if they are creating uh, the other very big uh, players or chieftains of the dasyu group are the panis the panis comes from the root pan which means to bargain and barter so are our actions and thoughts based on if i get this then i will do that if that happens and then i will do this is that the basis of our actions or is the basis of our actions that that is the thing that needs to be done and i will do it to the best of my capacity what is the basis of the actions that we choose to undertake because based on that will determine whether we have acted on the side of the light on the devas or we have gone on the side of the dasyus or the forces of the light, of the darkness okay so as i said this and then finally of course the actions so are my actions contributing towards harmony are they contributing towards beauty are they contributing towards uh, making of this world a truer place or are they in another sense contributing towards darkening and it's in this uh, choice in this game of choices at every moment that we realize that whatever we are offering to and that's the very second important image of the vedas whatever we are offering to is what will increase that's the law of the yajna the entire vedic yajna that is at the very heart of vedic practice uh, the ritualistic practice is this recognition that the entire cosmos is in a process of exchange it is there is a give and there is a take so what is being given and why is it being given because depending on that will determine what we receive so if i'll give you an example a concrete example so let's take knowledge knowledge itself is something which is very beautiful and which is very enlightening in itself but so therefore i'm offering my time to knowledge let's say i i'm talk of my own life at the moment i'm a scholar i'm an academician and therefore my time is supposed to be dedicated to that so i i'm supposed to pursue knowledge now so that is what i am offering to so the what has is clear then the comes the question of why why am i doing it so there are many people who become academicians because they want to become famous there are people who become academicians because they want to uh, you know earn a lot of money so teachers for example i'm saying at what level this has implications so in schools teachers who the role there is a certain satya there is a certain truth to why you become a teacher the whole role of a teacher is to impart knowledge but because of the na- nature of the systems we have created which are like specially qualified by the fact that we are in kali yuga special <laughs> where you know truths are as obscure as possible huh? we are very removed from the original potentials of things we are in kamchalao realities so because of that reality teachers instead of teaching are busy making uh, tuition money so they will teach less so that they can make more money so they become business people huh and therefore it is knowledge but depending on the why of that knowledge 
the entire nature of that activity changes and therefore the satya of that activity is corrupted and therefore there is a downfall in the entire uh, that particular discipline or that particular function is no longer serving the original purpose that it had because who was supposed to be a teacher in samaja they had the brahmana who was the teacher who was the brahmana not a jati brahmana a jati brahmana is not more uh, of value than a crow born in a crow's family basically but the very concept of the brahmana was one who is a possessor and a knower of the brahman and what was this brahman the brahman was that underlying uh, that underlying truth of existence huh? that underlying satya the truth of things so one who had who who looked at reality from the highest to the material from the spiritual to the material and, and knew that entire connection such a person was the brahmana and we can only begin to imagine what kind of society would have ha- we would have had if such were the teachers of the society one who could see that truth and was at all times helping us to realign ourselves to those goals i mean it's not for no reason that this country was for a long time at the heights of everything because such were the qualities of the pathfinders for us starting from the rishis who laid down these paths for us all right so we have uh, the brahman so i was telling you about an action so the teaching so knowledge what is determined the why is determined the why so if i am doing it for fame then very typically it's the panis so if i have to teach now or if i have i'm speaking now but supposing i'm sitting here because i want to become a famous person then i will keep trying to tell you things that are you know that are exciting for you or that you will all maybe clap your hands but which might be difficult to digest I will not tell you things that are difficult to digest. I will not tell you things that are hard to hear. I'll tell you things that are pleasing, that we are all great people. Let's in the, I don't. I will not go down a route of criticism, but also the fact that let's say we all we are all part of a, a, a certain philosophy that we have adhered to. The question that really each one of us can ask ourselves is, if we subscribe to that, if we call ourselves practitioners of the integral yoga. to what extent is that really what we are doing in our lives this is a it's a very uncomfortable question if we investigate it sincerely and therefore uh, what does it mean I, and at, at the end of the day when we talk of satya to me it really more and more is uh, boiling down to this question of what do we really mean by what we say and do our thoughts do our actions do our uh, words align with what we claim that we are at all levels if we are not it means that the panis are acting that if i do this then that will happen if i do this then that will happen if i do this so in the vedas they say that the more we are able to keep them aside the more we are able to do things because that is what needs to be done but in order to know what needs to be done one has to be able to see what has to be done in order to see what has to be done one has to be able to clear up our preferences our dislikes that's one way of doing it where intellectually i say okay now i am going to become the observer so i started off with those four things that the mother says so i become an observer next she says uh, she says surveye so survey what is happening start under- we have to start understanding okay this is 
taking me on the path this is okay so this is taking me towards light and towards expansion this is taking me towards uh, darkness and towards narrowness so can we start doing that viveka that discretion within our system the more we are able to do that we will have an idea because it's very clear either we are expanding or we are not that is a clear thing and therefore we can start choosing to walk on that path even if it's a tough path okay and then so then she says second is to survey third is to control can we start choosing consciously so first observe what is the path second is to survey okay this is taking me towards light that is taking me towards darkness to know it so that is where uh, duryodhana's famous dilemma he says janami dharmam nachame pravrittihi janami adharmam nachame nivrittihi ha so he says i know what is the truth i know what i have to do but i am unable to do it i know what i should not do but i am unable to stop myself from doing it ha and then he says uh, there is something within me that is seem to be pushing so who is the guide really finally who is in charge of that uh, gaadi that we are driving this is a machine on a path who is the driver and why are we putting whoever we are putting as the driver is it a hijacker sitting there is it ourselves for our good who is sitting there so many questions that come up the moment we explore okay so then we have to choose so will i take that road or will i take that road so that's the control but at that stage one is still in a dvividha thing and then finally the step is one is master there is no choice but to follow the gps which is showing us the shortest route that's the fastest uh, thing but for that one see, why do we trust a gps because it allows it gives us information of an entity which is sitting above and which has a more holistic view of the entire map that's why we trust that over and above our senses that are saying okay i know this road that goes but i might know that road i don't know that there is a traffic jam uh, a little ahead but if i take that position on top that will tell me acha wahan pe traffic jam hai you take that route or at least know that there is a traffic jam so that you can prepare accordingly you can plan your time accordingly so this uh, the internal gps basically is that witness consciousness so in the vedas they talk of indra which is which who can play that role of that witness consciousness the the uh, higher illumined mind and then there is the agni so it's the two pole so there is indra on top and there has to be a constant agni that will to follow that path so the word agni is again beautiful and this is what sri aurobindo says leads us to the secret of the vedic truth that these terms are not random the word agni means agre nayati iti agni that which always burns upward that substance is called agni it's always burning upwards so what in us what will power in us is there that will always push us towards the light will always push us towards expansion it is there and why is it there like the mother tells us she says that the psychic being at the beginning chooses the sets of experiences it wants to have in order to arrive at its own self discovery that's the end home is knowing oneself in one's entirety and manifesting that in life so if that is indeed the journey to be undertaken then uh, one has to understand uh, th- then in that case one can that that what do you say the original the reason is there within the the knowledge of that journey is there already in the psychic being but can we become receptive to that 
can we open up to that gps that is not just outside but also within and allow us to be guided and that is agni in the vedas it is it's known as jata veda the knower of the births uh, so the more we are able to uh, burn that agni the more the mind which is generally like butter and opaque will become bright and that's what we pour into the vedic uh, hymn the ghrita the, uh, the ghee that we pour and the brighter it is the more we will be able to understand where we have to go and why we have to go so sri aurobindo basically summarizes the vedic aspiration as in the chapter called the doctrine of the mystics and that's one chapter if you read you will get a very good understanding of the entire plot of the vedas so the chapter the doctrine of the mystic tells us that there are four doctrines the first doctrine is that uh, there is this apparent uh, darkness that we are in in which light has to grow so we are that uh, individual or we are that instrument that is meant here to grow light to grow expansion so that is the first one and we are therefore we have imperfections we have to find our perfections the second truth or uh, the second doctrine of the mystic is that uh, there are many paths but those paths are rittasya panthaha there are paths of the right so this the sanatana dharma therefore never said there is one path because each one of us is a unique experiment of natures and therefore each one of us has the right path for us just like the music each one of us has the right notes to play for our lives and that's the swadharma that we have to discover and walk down okay so that the third one is that there are images three kinds of images the first is the battle between the forces of truth and the forces of light and darkness the second is the yajna that we are performing where you light the fire we pour in the ghrita of clarity of thoughts and at the end of it uh, we uh, arrive at greater truths uh, we also pour the mantra or the word of truth into that then we have the the third image is that of a journey where we are going from lesser truths to greater truths uh, the last truth is that there is one ekam sat vipra bahudha vadanti and to close on the note of the truth where uh, this the word satya itself comes from sat which means being satyam is the quality of beingness this ability of beingness is something that one can only attain if the mind is present at all times if we observe the mind it is either going forward or back it is very rarely present so satya at the end is this ability to be fully present at all times and vedic psychology is the path through the symbols of the different godheads who represent different psychological movements to take us uh, towards that uh, discovery of how do we be so the vedas itself the knowledge that has to be acquired through a particular thought process on how to be that i would say is the summary of the entire uh, crux of what the vedic knowledge is but i think i'd like to leave you just with this invitation to play this game of uh, life more consciously where we are either investing in light or we are investing in darkness we are either investing in expansion or we are ex you know investing in uh, contraction and therefore the whole uh, essence summarized in the vedic uh, mantra asato ma sadgamaya tamaso ma jyotir gamaya mrityor ma amritangamaya om shanti 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 which says that lead me 
from darkness no from untruth to truth from darkness to light from death to immortality but the sanskrit of it makes it more interesting because it becomes lead me to the truth of the untruth lead me to the light of the darkness lead me to the immortality of death where everything in the universe is an appearance of the potential that can be and the invitation for us is to learn how to have the drishti go beyond what appears and touch the essence which is the common satya underlying everything so i'd like uh, i'll have to close here it's 11 and i will uh, end my part of it with uh, requesting all of you to join me on this mantra of asatoma sadgamaya and then if there are any questions any thoughts i'd love to hear from you om asatoma sadgamaya tamasoma jyotirgamaya mrityorma amritangamaya om shanti shanti shanti